0: The Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Dr. John Newton, the Chief Economist of the American Farm Bureau Federation. We're talking at the meeting of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture in Washington, D.C so it's so nice to have you here well, thanks a lot and I'm really anxious to talk to you about some of the issues of the future that you see what kinds of economic future do you think we have and in, uh, in terms of agriculture and where is all of this going?
1: Well I think our short run challenge that we have you know, right in front of us for for 2020 is is finding a way to to really turn around the farm economy. Many farmers and ranchers have been We're in our eighth year now of down-farm economy when you look at net cash income, so uh, all eyes obviously are on the trade front. We're very anxious to see uh, the phase one deal with China materialize into actual uh, shipments and sales of agricultural products. We're anxious to regain uh, our market share in the Japanese market, and now that we've enhanced our trading relationship with Canada and Mexico, we have an integrated North American market. We look forward to getting back to business there, but... We really do need to turn around the farm economy, and that, that's going to be the driving uh, factor. Really, economic sustainability will help us to, to achieve our long-run goals in agriculture when you think about technology, adoption, innovation, and how we're going to produce more, more food, more fuel, more fibers, uh, and do so with a, a lower environmental footprint.
0: So do you think that the coronavirus that we're dealing with, that whole issue is going to affect this?
1: Without a doubt, it's already uh, impacting global trade flows, Uh, first quarter economic growth forecasts around the world are being lowered. uh, As we speak, Chinese GDP growth was lowered from 6% to 5.4% as a result of the coronavirus. And the fact that it's spreading, Uh, Outside of China now has the markets alarmed, the markets are down for two consecutive days. Yesterday the market's down nearly a thousand points. It's definitely having an impact, and it's going to have an impact from an agricultural perspective on uh, the timing of when we may start to see uh, those sales to China materialize. It's certainly pushed it back a few months. Uh, We need to get the global supply chain back up and running, and right now it's it's been at a standstill uh, due to the coronavirus.
0: So that's an issue that I think that the whole world is going to have to be dealing with. but what other things can be done besides having the trade agreements in place um, to help people in the agricultural sector be? Able to get into old markets again, and then new markets.
1: Well, I think you know one of the, the things we're also trying to do is, is talk better to our consumers here at home. Uh, you know, less than two percent of the population in the U.S. is farmers. That means everybody else is—they're so far removed from agriculture that they don't understand agriculture. So we need to do a better job talking about how we care for our animals how we raise the crops, why we use the technology that we do to regain the trust of the consumer. The U.S. consumer spends approximately five to four and a half to five percent of their disposable income on food. So they don't understand agriculture the way that, and have the same respect for agriculture the way that consumers in other countries that have to spend a much higher percentage of their income on food. So we need to do a better job of engaging those consumers And I think if we do that, the consumers, there's a willingness to pay for some of the things that we're already doing as farmers and ranchers on the sustainability front, the way we care for animals, the way we take care of our farm labor. Uh, And the consumers are willing to pay for that. And we need to find a way to channel that economic sustainability from the consumer back to the farm to help them be profitable in the long run.
0: So you mentioned labor. Do you think that right now, with some of the executive changes in the various types of visas that people are allowed to have, that that's going to have an impact on the industry as a whole?
1: Quite frankly, agriculture has had a labor challenge for for a long time. Uh, Right now, uh, the challenge is being exacerbated by uh, historically low uh, unemployment in the United States. We haven't had unemployment this low since after World War II. Uh, so the challenge to find agricultural workers is, is, is very real today, but, but farmers and ranchers and agribusinesses have been mechanizing labor-intensive practices in agriculture for, for a number of years. When you think about robotic milkers or machines that can pick strawberries or, or pick blueberries. Uh, so, so technology adoption, uh, whether it's uh, vehicles, self-driving vehicles, that's going to continue. And I think that's going to be long-term the, the labor solution in agriculture, is is increased technology adoption.
0: So, uh, speaking of that change, so if you have to, if you are mechanizing something um, like the picking of something as delicate as a strawberry, does that also mean, though, that only certain types of strawberries can be grown because then those are the only ones that can survive the mechanized picking?
1: You know, I'm not an engineer, but I'm not also going to discount the ingenuity of the engineers that are working on the type of technology that farmers and ranchers need. And I think one of the things that we've seen is necessity is the mother of invention. So if you need to have that mechanization be more delicate for certain varieties that you may be growing, the market, the invisible hand, so to speak, always finds a solution for a challenge that's there. And I don't discount the ability of agricultural technology to adopt to, to the needs of, of that point in time.
0: Several years ago, I was sent by the Department of Agriculture to Russia mm-hmm. um, to talk to master classes that they were holding there of chefs who were people in charge of very, very large institutions, whether it was universities where they were doing thousands of meals a day or hospitals or nursing homes, all of that sort of thing. And I was part of a team that talked about the history of, of basically the kinds of foods that are pigs and chickens. So we talked about historic dishes and how all of that came about. How the pig came to America, all of that kind of thing, and then we had chefs who were addressing different recipes and things like that. So this was actually not on a policy level. This was, these are the almost consumers. They're the, the users who are manipulating the food the last time before it goes on a plate, because they thought that if there would be somebody who was ordering this and there was a, enough demand so they were trying to create the demand in the country by mm-hmm. sending us over there how much of that do you see happening how much of that kind of innovative types of marketing do you see going on that would be good for everybody to know about
1: i think one of the, the areas that we see that is is through USDA's you know foreign market development programs uh, where they they help and they find uh, projects where you can co-fund people going into these countries, teaching them how to use American agricultural products, or so whether it's working with ch- chefs in South Korea on how to use American cheeses on dishes. So, so we do see USDA through the Farm Bill has funds to do that, and they partner with the Checkoff organizations. You know, that's, that's critical, because as these economies around the world continue to grow, the first thing that that people do when they have a little bit of extra change in their pocket is they improve their diet and they're going to need to know how to use these foods how to prepare these foods the flavor profile of these foods and that's why getting in these markets and and sharing uh, the benefits of u.s agriculture is so so critical as we look at an expanding sub-saharan africa economy as we look at southeast asia the places where economic growth is going to be so huge in, in the coming decades it's getting access to those markets, having good access, and, and eliminating non-tariff barriers to trade, reducing tariff barriers to trade. That's going to help U.S. agriculture be well-positioned to supply those markets.
0: So do you see anything new on the horizon, new plants, new industries, anything like that?
1: You know, a great example, I had the opportunity to visit with a, a premier dairy company uh, last week when I was in Minnesota, and they, they make... Uh, cheese slices and and they work very hard to get access into the Chinese market and the Chinese market, the the Shake Shack, the restaurants in China Mm -hmm, have been buying New Zealand cheese and the New Zealand cheese isn't big enough on the patty to show up in an Instagram picture. So (laughs) so the executives uh, at the Shake Shack in China found this American company with American-made cheese that was big, the yellow cheese, mm-hmm. and laid on top of the burger. And, and fell
0: over the side It And made for bit. an yeah.
1: excellent Instagram <laughs> post. But it's because of that, and it's because of the relationships that that American company had with the Chinese buyers, that now the U.S. dairy farmer, the cheese made from their milk, is going all the way to China to sit on a Shake Shack burger because of Instagram, because of the relationships that have been mm-hmm. built. So that's the most direct example I can share.
0: And that's really interesting because that's not Shake Shack doing it. This is the, the Chinese people doing it who are, who are running, those company, uh, running the actual Shake Shack there.
1: It, it, it most likely is, is, you're exactly right, they're on-the-ground they're on the procurement folks mm-hmm. making those decisions. And it's, that's where the American go going to meet those procurement folks to demo our products, showcase our products at food expos around the world is so important.
0: And so do you see anything else new that might be planted here? Anything that we might start growing because of new food trends or anything like that? Well,
1: farmers are certainly uh, looking for, for new food trends. And I think you know, one of the things that we're starting to see more and more of is, is the food companies growing what I'm going to call, which really isn't well-defined, regenerative ag. So you know, the sustainability profile... Mm-hmm. of the products that were growing so knowing that the the oats you have a cover crop uh, rotation there or that you you have buffer strips or that your your no-till or your conservation till all those different you know carbon sinks that are associated with producing oats or wheat or corn or soybeans it's now a, a product attribute associated with that with what was once a commodity number two yellow corn But now you have the sustainability profile layered on top of it that that the market, to this point, is still trying to figure out how to price that back to the grower, Mm -hmm. but there's definitely a willingness to pay. We just haven't figured out the economic model to get it back to the farmer yet.
0: And it's definitely something that consumers ask about now, more and more.
1: It's it's more than just consumers. It's coming from investors uh, that are investing in these food companies. It's coming from... Uh, investors that are uh, putting parking their assets so to speak in in companies that buy agricultural land so it's it's coming all the way down the supply chain from not only the company but from the investors that invest in those corporations so uh, farmers have an opportunity to respond but that goes back to our earlier point about we need to do a better job of telling our story because a lot of those folks that are these investors they're so far removed from agriculture many of whom maybe have never stepped on a farm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: don't understand that that we're, we're at the lead, we're at the head of the pack when it comes to sustainability. Globally, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture is 24%. In the United States, it's less than 10%. And that's because we're, we're right place, right time, right amount, right product. Uh, we're doing everything with precision ag. We can apply fertilizer and chemicals at the plant level we can plant at the right seeding rate based on the soil type we're so innovative and so efficient in what we do that we already have a a low and and diminishing carbon footprint on a per unit basis but people that are several steps removed from agriculture don't understand that don't know that we've been doing it for decades and so we need to do a better job telling our story uh, not only to the consumers and the agribusinesses but also uh, we're in an election year on capitol hill
0: Mm -hmm. So what do you think about the future in terms of the number of individual farmers and small farms, and how is that going to affect what happens in the future?
1: You know, I think about that quite a bit, uh, quite frankly, and I think you know we don't get an opportunity to really evaluate it that often. Uh, The Census of Ag gives us an excellent opportunity to evaluate some of those trends, and the 2017 census that USDA released this year, revealed what, what i think many have have known for some time and that's we've got a shrinking middle mm-hmm. the small farms maybe that the have the land paid off and have low fixed costs and can adjust their variable costs continue the middle's getting squeezed out because you either get big or you're going away and you are seeing farms get get larger and larger and larger to try to capture the economies of scale that, that come with that sure uh, that doesn't mean those large farms are more profitable uh, they have an incredible amount of expenses, incredible, uh, you know, debt structure to, to run those large operations, but but that's what you're seeing. Is you're seeing a hollowing out of, of the middle in agriculture, and I think that has implications.
0: So, what are those implications?
1: Well, it's 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 not a rapid hollowing out of the middle. It, it it's happening. It's you know, but I think it, it, You need to think about as a, as a society what we need to do to help protect. The middle-sized farmers how do we get young farmers to to want to get into farming when you have uh, these high barriers to entry through land values that are 15 to twenty thousand an acre in, in parts of illinois and iowa uh, maybe ten thousand dollars an acre you know in the in the uh, land where you'd like to run cattle, maybe put them on pasture. You have these very, very high barriers to entry. So young folks that get into farming, unless they inherit that, it's very, very difficult to make that you know a financially sustainable but, business model. But
0: what happens if you lose that middle?
1: Well, I don't think we're going to lose the middle. Okay. I, mean, I think that we just need to to provide the right incentive structure. How do we get those young people in? Maybe it's lower interest loans. I know several of the agribusinesses, ag finance folks, and even some of the State Department of Agriculture have packages to help young farmers get get better access to credit so they can get into the business. Dealing with, you know, our tax policy on Capitol Hill so that uh, when a farmer inherits, you know, their, their family's farm, they don't end up having to whittle it all the way through estate taxes. So there's a, a number of things we can do to make it easier for, for those, those middle and smaller size producers, farm programs. Uh, obviously, when you look at dairy farms, our farm safety net for dairy is, is really catered towards the, the average size dairy farm in the United States. So there's a, a variety of things that you can do. I think there just needs to be a more coordinated effort if, if we wanna protect those, those that middle.
0: So let me ask you about some other threats that I see that I think really hit the farms hard. One is water. Some of the issues of water, especially in places where you have the right temperature to grow things, but you don't necessarily have the rainfall, and so you're bringing in so much water that it may threaten water supply for just regular drinking. If we want to continue to grow, which everybody seems to want to do, I don't know that growing is always the best thing, but how do you deal with that?
1: Well, you know, the the best way you deal with that is through what we've been doing, through through productivity gains, through enhancement. When you look at uh, the way we've improved crop genetics and crop yields in the United States, Take, for example, corn. You know, we we have on average 178 bushels of corn per acre in the United States. 30 years ago was 120 bushels per acre in the United States. So what that means is we need 40 million acres less to produce the same amount of corn uh, than what we would have needed 30 years ago. Soybeans, we need 40 million fewer acres. Cotton, we need 5 million fewer acres. Rice, we need a million fewer acres. Wheat, we need 5 million fewer acres. You add those five commodities up, we need a hundred million acres less than what we needed thirty years ago to grow to grow today's crop. So I, I think you know we have a lower footprint that's needed. When you look at the number of, of dairy cattle that we need today. We're producing 70% more milk than what we did, you know, 30, 40 years ago with the same amount of animals. The same thing, same story on pork, same story on beef. So that's how you address that is, is by using fewer and fewer resources. Now water's always gonna be a challenge. But when you can have the, you know, the productivity gains that we have, that can help you address the the challenges you may face.
0: So, is there any way to be able to use gray water and things like that that would make it a little bit less of a of a hit on other water uses?
1: You no, know, I'm I'm a I'm an economist by training, not necessarily an agronomist or or an engineer that's going to know much about water allocation. I just think that. Uh, you know, agriculture has done a tremendous job of, of adapting in the face of adversity, mm-hmm. in the face of a, a variable climate, and we'll continue to do so.
0: Okay, so now I'm going to ask you some more questions that are kind of like this. What about the problems with pollinators that we've seen where there just seems to be a decline in bee colonies and bee colony collapse a, as a problem mm-hmm is that something that you hear has affected crop yield a lot
1: you know that's an issue area that that, um, someone else in our staff is is, handles primarily so i don't have much uh, expertise to offer there
0: okay okay i I, to me this is one of the things that you just worry about partially because bees seem to be cute but i have one more question and that has to has to do with invasive species And I know in Louisiana where I live we have wild boar that are just everywhere and they can wipe out a soybean field overnight Mm -hmm. and they get really fat and they taste really good but they um, are also very destructive Mm -hmm. and they're dangerous I mean you can't just kind of go up to them you know they're they're very dangerous animals Um, and I know that at At these conferences, that kind of thing is discussed a lot because Mm -hmm. it's something that the various departments of ags have tried to deal with. Is that something that you think is affecting yield?
1: Well, it's it's something that's impacting farmers and ranchers across the country. You mentioned, uh, you know, the the hog challenges that you got in the south, Mm -hmm. whether it be Louisiana or Florida. In uh, New Jersey, it's deer. Mm -hmm. The deer population is very very high per square mile
0: uh, and you have wolves that are um, involved in, in some the cattle industry and, and wild
1: horses out mm-hmm. west so it's certainly a challenge and I, I think we've, we've somewhat handcuffed ourselves in how we deal with these issues. We're not effectively managing our, our wildlife population and that has a negative impact on farmers and ranchers so you know it's not a solution that's going to be solved overnight uh, but you know we do continue to, to work on this issue. At American Farm Bureau, and I know many of the, the state departments of agriculture are, are also very, very engaged on, on these issues, on how do you deal and how do you properly manage uh, our stock of, of wildlife across country.
0: Yes. And, I mean, also, do you know whether there's any discussion with various fisheries and uh, departments and things like that? Because it doesn't just stay on land. I mean, you have, you have invasive species in the waterways also. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's just a it's an it's an issue that that requires uh, you know a, a good dialogue among all the stakeholders, uh, including consumers on how do you find how do you deal with with some of these challenges and and again you know as as we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast one of the challenges is is the the urban consumer is so far removed from the challenges in rural America mm-hmm. uh, that they don't understand the problems and and in many cases we're governed by where that constituent base happens to be and and so we need to do a better job communicating why we we're seeking some of these these policy objectives.
0: I will say that in Louisiana our problem with the wild wild pigs is actually something that we can eat. Whereas some things, some of the problems aren't as easily solved because <laughs> <laughs> if you can eat your way into management, it's uh, pretty nice. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I prefer to, to stay away from the wild horses.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so let me ask you one question about importation. Mm-hmm. So do you see challenges with things like AOC and those kinds of issues that people bring in. For example, let's say you bring prosciutto in from Parma, Italy, into America. But other people here are creating hams like this in much the same way, and they want to call it prosciutto, especially if they are perhaps of Amer- of Italian heritage and have learned these techniques from their families. Is this something that w- we've been addressing? And I also think about things like Vidalia onions and uh, Creole tomatoes and and things where we haven't you know except for something like You're making bourbon me hungry. <laughs> except for things like bourbon which is really well defined in in law mm-hmm. you know if it's really hard to to use the existing laws mm-hmm. uh, to to do things and before AOC was part of of treaties and that sort of thing, you know, there were people who were trademarking names like Mm -hmm. uh, Canadian bacon or or Parma ham or things like that. So what kind of impact do you think that this has? And will we be doing the same thing as Europe has been doing to protect our own products and to partially market them?
1: Well, I've got some Italian friends. Okay. And I'll tell you, they don't call it prosciutto, they call it prosciutto. They don't call it Capicola. They call it Gabagool.
0: They don't call it Calamari.
1: They call it galama. I've got some Italian friends, and, and I know how they talk. Uh, but it is a real serious challenge mm. in agriculture, whether it's the cheeses from Europe or the, or the wines. Rines. And, you know, we've got some, some products that we've developed here. And, and in the dairy industry in particular, and, and I used to work very closely with folks in the dairy industry, Products that we developed here and, and created names for here
0: mm-hmm.
1: You have others trying to infringe on that saying that we can't use it. Uh, a good example of that is Asiago cheese mm-hmm. we, we developed the Asiago cheese market here in the United States and, and for the Europeans to come over and say you can't call it Asiago cheese anymore It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, to say you can't call it Parmesan cheese anymore, it doesn't make sense uh, mm-hmm. to just have to change the label. It's still going to be in the green bottle mm-hmm. uh, unless you're Italian and you get it shaved at your local cheese shop. Right, but, but, right. Um, you know, I think it is a challenge. It's something that, that obviously, you know, USTR works on, obviously the, the administration works on. Uh, and again, that's one of those that's not going to be solved overnight. People are very, very passionate about their heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way that you talked about the people that prepare food and and, and they want to create it in, in these traditional ways to give it to the, to, the, to the people that are going to eat the meal, uh, people are very, very protective of their culture and their family values. And, and in many cases, you tie some of these foods to your family values. That's so,
0: right.
1: Uh, it, it is a challenge, uh, but I, th- I think we, you know, we're in a modern society. We need to have some common sense solutions to some of these things uh, and, and preventing somebody from making something because of the location, uh, in my opinion, is not the way to go.
0: Thanks so much for talking to me. I really appreciate your insights. It's kind of a a new perspective on on some of these, these questions. You've been listening to Tip of the Tongue on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.